In this episode of the Flory Stroke podcast, I'm here today with Professor Vincent Tess, a stroke neurologist and clinician researcher. He has led stroke units in Belgium and is now the head of stroke at Austin Health. He is the co-head of the stroke division at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. His main research topics include acute stroke imaging, genetics of stroke, atrial fibrillation, and cryptogenic stroke. I'm Tessa Marshall, and this is Scientists of Stroke by Flory Stroke. Welcome to Scientists of Stroke by Flory Stroke, where we discover how researchers at the Flory Institute are working to prevent stroke and reduce the impact of stroke. You can follow us on Twitter at Flory Stroke and find us on Facebook at Flory Stroke. Hi Vincent, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Um, so can you start by telling us a bit about your research? Um, <clears throat> my research spans uh, different areas uh, of the whole uh, stroke uh, continuum which starts in the pre-hospital arena and ends in uh, uh, people living at home with the consequences of stroke. So you did some research into atrial fibrillation, um, so this abnormal heart rhythm that increases the likelihood of someone having a stroke. Um, so what's the best way to detect atrial fibrillation mm -hmm. in someone who's had a stroke? Well, the, the easiest way is most people, you just have to do an EKG and you find atrial fibrillation. And the next step, what we do in people that just had a stroke, is to look at their history. Because often they will tell us, oh, we had, uh, I had a diagnosis two or three years ago of atrial fibrillation. And then the third way is looking in the stroke unit, people are monitored with a cardiac monitor. And they're often the nurses of the stroke team picks up our patient has intermittent episodes of atrial fibrillation. So that's relatively easy. It becomes more difficult when you think the patient may have atrial fibrillation. We often think that when we cannot find any other reason why people had a stroke and they're in the particular age group, um, then we think, well, we really need to go actively look for atrial fibrillation. And the traditional technique that we use is a halter test, which is just a little box that people carry around that is connected to electrodes around the heart. Um, and uh, there that can pick up in about 5% uh, atrial fibrillation. But then it becomes more and more difficult. You can carry that halter for a week or for a month, but it becomes quite impractical for people. They cannot shower, uh, the machine is always there, it's starting to bother them and we know that the uptake is quite quite low after two or three weeks. People get very bored with it and uh, they don't use the test anymore. So uh, even then, uh, after two or three weeks, it may be that the patient has just one episode of atrial fibrillation once every three or four weeks. And uh, if you really want to find that type of atrial fibrillation, Probably an insertable cardiac monitor is, is the way you, you, you have to do it. Uh, these are uh, uh, little uh, thumbnail-sized devices that are put under the skin uh, by a cardiologist. Uh, um, it's very non-invasive and it can detect atrial fibrillation for up to three years. 
because the battery lasts that long. And it can uh, send a signal and capture that signal if people have atrial fibrillation, it's retained in the memory, can send a signal to the cardiologist that atrial fibrillation episode has been detected. And then we can treat our patients uh, with the appropriate preventative agent and also start them on a pathway uh, to get the atrial fibrillation uh, monitored or, or, or treated with antiarrhythmic drugs if necessary. So what criteria would a patient have to meet for you to consider putting an implantable device in to mm -hmm. monitor mm -hmm. their heart? So they, my criteria are uh, the age range of the patients above 60. Uh, I start thinking about insertable cardiac monitor because that's the age range when people in the general population start getting more and more atrial fibrillation. Um, secondly, of course, uh, a very good workup to identify other causes of stroke. Thirdly, they need to be able to take an oral anticoagulant because otherwise there's no point. So they, they cannot have a contraindication uh, for oral anticoagulation. Mm, and they need to be motivated to undergo regular checks for the device. Um, and they need to uh, be, be able to come to their uh, cardiologist on a regular basis to let their devices checked. And so, so those would be my, my preferred criteria. And then I'll often look at the imaging and think how likely it is that it, the stroke is related to atrial fibrillation. That's not very scientific because patterns on, on the MRI can sometimes be very suggest, suggestive, but most often they're not very suggestive. That sounds like you have to consider the individual patient's yes. characteristics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's really an area where you have to go uh, into shared decision making uh, with the patient and say, look, there are, certain, there are uncertainties, but I think if you really want to get to the bottom of what caused your stroke, this is certainly an, a, a strategy. Now, in our field, uh, there is a lot of discussion about uh, this atrial fibrillation that is only detected if you really go looking hard for it. What is the relevance of that atrial fibrillation? Um, and some people have said, oh, it's just an incidental finding, it has nothing to do with the stroke. And other people uh, claim, look, this is atrial fibrillation. Uh, once we detect it, you have to treat it, especially in stroke patients that have an unexplained stroke. If you find atrial fibrillation, it's relevant. And there are arguments pro and con. Um, and at the moment we uh, are awaiting the results uh, from studies that are going on in uh, the cardiology field where they often encounter this situation. Many people have pacemakers or uh, uh, cardiac devices that are able to capture atrial fibrillation and often they find in people these episodes and they don't really reach a threshold for them of treatment and there's also pros and cons of, cons of treating them because the medication may have side effect. And so they, they have, are doing these trials that compare anticoagulant treatment versus uh, standard treatment to see whether they really need to be more aggressive about this. And hopefully in a few years we'll have the answer to those studies. At the moment in my practice, when I detect it, I treat. And I, I try to identify the patients that will benefit the most if we find. 
So even if you find just one instance of atrial fibrillation. Yeah, yeah, because they've had an unexplained stroke and uh, we, it's, it's, the, the link with stroke is so strong. But the definitive evidence is lacking at the moment, yes. So you're waiting on a few trials yes. to yes. show you yeah, 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 exactly yeah. when it's um, beneficial and when it's not. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Vincent, you've been doing work in cryptogenic stroke, um, so strokes where there's no known cause. Mm -hmm. So if you don't find AF or you don't find any other cause, how do you, what do you do with a patient if you're not sure what the cause Well, is? first of all, reassure the patient that it's a normal thing, that it's, uh, it's quite common that we cannot find a cause uh, for a stroke. Often there are uh, hints uh, that what may be going on. Actually, if you look at people with a cryptogenic stroke, it's probably quite a mixed bag people where really they don't have any risk factor and when we do testing they don't have any even minor degree of plaque in their carotids or they have uh, uh, pristine blood vessels or aortic arch then it's really hard they really have a unknown etiology i would say that's a minority of people in other people with cryptogenic stroke there are small changes that don't raise to the level of being confident that it caused a stroke, but they're still there. And that could be, for instance, we have a rule that says we can say a patient has uh, a defined cause of stroke, atherosclerosis of the large vessel, when the narrowing of the blood vessel is more than 50%. But what do you do if a patient has 40%? Well, we cannot apply the rule, so they fall outside the rule, probably, likely is related to the stroke or indicates that there is a pathology that predisposes to stroke, namely atherosclerosis. It might not reach the 50% threshold, but it's still there. So uh, in a, I often look for these minor findings and, and gear my therapy towards that. Um, now, recently there was an interesting study the, uh, that looked at people with cryptogenic stroke, and uh, to really make a clear definition, they mandated particular tests uh, to be done because also that's a huge problem in cryptogenic stroke is that uh, every hospital or physician seem to have their preferred tests to diagnose the etiology of stroke. So they tried to harmonize that and then they came up with this category that they called embolic stroke of unknown source or ESIS. And the idea was, well, many of these people have a look similar to atrial fibrillation patients. Why don't we just give them the anticoagulant? These anticoagulants have become much safer over the years and compare them to standard aspirin therapy. And uh, in a large scale trial, uh, it's about 6,000 people, they uh, randomized the patients into the novel anticoagulant or aspirin and to their surprise found that the, the novel anticoagulant didn't perform better than aspirin and that the bleeding risk was uh, increased in people that were on the oral anticoagulant. So whether it's due to that particular drug that was tested or whether really the concept is wrong, we don't really know. Um, and um, But it still remains uh, a big question in our field unfortunately there is another study that's ongoing that will provide a definitive answer 
um, and that will be reported in October to, to really uh, close off the issue whether anticoagulants are needed in this area. If that's not the case, then we really have to go back to the drawing board and see what, what else we can provide for these patients instead of standard therapy. So does that mean that for now, while you're waiting for the results of that trial, you don't give anticoagulants? We don't give, give anticoagulants. Instead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. we just give aspirin or no other antiplatelet agent. Yeah. Yeah. For these patients for these. where you're not sure yeah. what the yeah. stroke yeah. has been caused by. Great. Um, just some more general questions about your research. So how do you divide your time between being a clinician and a researcher? Um, it's uh, I have the opportunity to be able to work in an environment where the two are very closely interlinked um, and uh, every time I'm on the board I want to do research and when, every time I do research <laughs> I want to be back on the board so it's a difficult situation but, uh, no I think that's uh, that's Exciting is a variety uh, when you're doing uh, when you can combine both. That's great that you get to have both. Yes. Um, well, what inspired you to pursue stroke research? I think it stroke in itself is a field where I saw as a resident that so much needed to be done. When uh, I trained, most people with stroke were looked after not by neurologists or stroke specialists. And often, uh, I remember the first time I saw a patient with a very severe stroke uh, in the ED. Um, the cardiologist looked through the curtain and saw, oh, it's a stroke, closed the curtain and said, bring the patient to the ward. And that was all he did with the stroke. And now if you see the dramatic evolution where that patient will now make a good chance of full recovery in about 20 years, that's quite amazing. That's such a fast progression in research and implementing yeah, that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I think the research that I do tries to be um, clinically translatable or in the long run lead to novel therapies and treatment strategies for patients. So it's very patient directed. Uh, and I think clinical trials and genetic studies are uh, providing the best evidence in medicine at the moment. And what's your favorite thing about working at the Flory? It's a great environment to work with uh, leaders in the stroke field uh, and uh, together produce answers for the future. Do you have any advice for any budding neurologists or scientists out there? Well I think it's uh, very important to collaborate and to learn uh, from other people. Um, try to find your own niche but uh, at the same time be open to collaborate and uh, if, if you're good you'll, you'll be recognized. Great, well thank you for joining me today Vincent. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host, Tessa Marshall. To hear more about Vincent's work and about other stroke research at the Flory, check out our other episodes on Podbean and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Flory Stroke.